You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Um, so, I, yeah, I just got back a couple weeks ago from Columbia. I didn't get to share much about that. I just wanted to give you a quick update. Uh, spent six, seven days in Colombia with our friends Peter and Gloria Vardenar and their family uh, walking with some of their teams that they're growing. So kind of what they're working on right now, if you don't know, we're planting a church in Cali, Colombia. Uh, it's a city of almost three million people. It has grown drastically since I was there last six years ago. And uh, really just a, a really great trip, but spent time with about uh, 20 to 30 folks that they're gathering already, which they're doing fantastic, just gathering these people, uh, really kind of pouring into them. But these are the, this is the group that's going to actually help launch the church. So we went and looked at some buildings, some spaces to rent, uh, really made some good headway, some next steps that we're going to take. Uh, we're going to be kind of talking a lot more about that over the next couple months, uh, what it looks like for us to support them and help them get on their feet, um, church getting started. But we'll probably launch either late uh, fall, early winter, or maybe even the new year. It just depends on things, right? So I um, just wanted to give you an update. Thank you for praying for me. Those of you who are doing that, really appreciate it. Uh, felt like it was a phenomenal trip, very productive. So, all right. We're here we are, still in our series, Garden to City. I have uh, this message and next week's message. And then we're going to be kind of going into the book of Revelation, okay? And that's kind of why we're calling this Garden to City. If you weren't here for the first one, we're starting here in Genesis where humanity began in this garden. But where do we end up? We see in Revelation this city of God. And we see this description in Revelation 21 or 22. I forget where it first comes in. But, um, and where do we end up as humanity? So we've talked about what does it look like? What did God intend for us? What did God have for us as humanity? And, you know, often, I, I recently I just had someone in Augsburg say, why do you say humanity a lot? I said, you know why? Because I don't want to just say Christians. Because you know what God's interest is? Is in humanity. You see, his interest is in every single human being that has ever walked, lived, and breathed on this planet. To pull them back into his family. Now, it says that all of us are separated from God. But the reality is God's intention is to pull us back into relationship with him. So when I talk about what God's designed for us, it's not just as Christians. I believe it's for every human being on the planet. And so I say humanity a lot. So I look at Genesis and I look, what did God's design look like at the beginning of all this? And then how is he in process? And we see a lot of processing in the, you know, the Bible. But how is he in process even over these last couple thousand years? And where do we end up as humanity? What is God's intention and direction for all of us? And we see a lot of that at the beginning. We see a lot of it in the end. And so that's kind of what this whole series has been about. Now I'm going to talk about Joseph's life today. Uh, which is really just a fun one. It's, it's a great story. If you haven't read the story of Joseph, you can start in around uh, chapter 37 where we are, and it goes all the way through the end of Genesis. But next week, I actually uh, will be my last message out of Genesis. And just kind of a note, because I know you'll all love to come and hear this message. Uh, it's about tithing. <laughs> You're like, oh, i got something to do next week. Um, you know, we talk about giving, we talk about tithing, this idea of a 10% thing. And I just want to give this notion 
um, of how important it is. And, and you know, I've, I just this weekend, you know, I heard a rumor, because I'm hearing rumors about our church all the time. They're kind of funny. Um, there's still this one that seems to progress throughout the last 40 years that you have to pay some large amount of money to come here. Recently, I heard it was 25000 like, whoa, I would be driving a better car if that was true. Like just a $25,000 entry fee to come to church. Or that you have to sign off 25% of your income, which I'm like, wow, I don't even know where they're, this is going up. Must be inflation on tithe. Now, the idea of tithing is not this demand from God, but I want to talk about next week and how important the reality is of what it teaches us. Because at the end of the day, what Sherry said was true. He doesn't need our money. Now, do we need money to turn the lights on and heat the building and, and have a decent parking lot? Yes. But the reality is, what is it doing for us in the process of giving? I actually believe that giving is possibly the most joyful thing you can do in the world. Anybody win the Mega Millions yet? No? I mean, someone did, right? Someone guy in Illinois, $1.28 billion. And my brother and I had this little debate about Mega Millions recently. See, he was telling me about some tickets, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, don't do that. It'll ruin you. He's like, what are you talking about? It'll ruin you. And I'm like, oh, that kind of money would ruin you unless you gave away 99.99% of it. Even that .01% is a lot of money. But I'm like, money, without the right understanding of what it's for, is destructive, actually. And tithing and giving, because tithing is just a notion. I want, we're going to really talk about giving. Giving does something to us as humans. I'm, see, I'm speaking my whole message for next week already. But I just wanted to not have you discouraged and not come back. Giving does something for us as humans. So I really would ask you, come next week. If you're interested and you're like, man, I hear them talk about this all the time and it's weird. I don't know why you would do that. Come next week, all right? Um, so, yeah, there's my preview trailer for next week. Um, so Genesis 37, let's open our Bibles. We're going to walk through the story of Joseph. I want to hit a few big points. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been a Christ follower or someone who goes to church most of their life, you've heard this story. And I would ask you, as I often ask you, don't think you always know what it's about. You know, you can read the same scriptures over and over, and God will illuminate something new to you. So I would just say, ask God, show me something new in this story this morning. Show me something new that you want to use in my life and shape me and how to direct me in this story this morning. For those of you who haven't heard this story, it's a good one. So here we are in Genesis 37. If you have your Bibles, you can open them with me. We always have Bibles on these racks in the back. If you need one, you can keep it. It's for you. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, and we're going to skip a whole bunch. Uh, we can't possibly read chapters 37 through 50, but we're going to skip through and hit the main points and some things I want to bring out today. So here we are, 37, verse 1. So Jacob settled again. So here we are with Jacob. We're picking up in his life. Settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bila and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. We call that a tattletale. <laughs> Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So let's just, we got to take note of this. There's, there's something going on in this family. And as you read through it, 
I, I want to just say this. This is an extremely dysfunctional family. Sometimes we read stories in the Bible and we're like, oh, they're so holy. No, they're not. They're actually quite dysfunctional and messed up. Jacob is one of them for sure. So first off, you know, we get to this part where we're about to see that Joseph was preferred above all his other brothers, that they all knew it, and that, honestly, his brothers hated him. Well, then just imagine the situation in his family. This is not, it said his half-brothers, right? So his father, Jacob, has four wives at this point. Four wives. Bad idea. It was bad since the beginning of time. It's bad today. Don't have four wives or four spouses. It doesn't work out. And we see this play out over and over in the Old Testament. Now, I've had questions people ask. They say, well, why, you know, God was permitting it, you know, at that time. I'm like, no, no, he wasn't. We, just because we don't see God come down and strike people with lightning when they're doing things he doesn't want them to do doesn't mean it's permissive. Now, does God use every situation? I think this is one of the main points of this family. Look at how dysfunctional this family is. Then look at your family and think, oh, my gosh, God can use us. If you don't have four wives, you're ahead of Jacob already. Like, look at this situation. This is messed up. So we have this son who's preferred above all the others. We have four wives. We have multiple children that are out there. They're tending the flock. And we see this kind of thing start to take place. We know that the brothers have animosity towards each other. you got Joseph. He's telling on them. And, and you've got all this kind of stuff happening. So we're going to move down to verse 5. It says, One night Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Things are going in the right direction. They hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? Now, at the time, Joseph is one of the youngest of the children. He's not the, well, he's going to not be the youngest in a little while. And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream. The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is this? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. So we see this dream, these couple dreams that come to Joseph. Now, a lot of us look at Joseph, and I, and I think we're like, oh, he's just this wonderful character. Look at his life. Look at how he ends up. I'm not so sure. At this age, if you get a dream like this, I think he's kind of like a little haughty about it. In fact, for him to have said this to his father would be extremely ignorant of respect for his dad. In that day, the father figure was the most revered, the most respected. You, you did whatever they asked. And to say or even allude to the notion that one day he would bow before you as the, younger, as the youngest son would be literally completely out of place. So for him to do this, either he's really, really naive or the idea that his dad loves him more than everybody has really gotten to his head. And so there's this notion here where he's, he's wanting them to know 
that God's kind of elevating him. And even though the dreams do become true and, and the things actually take place, I'm not sure that Joseph in this moment is really ready for it. Or that he is even worthy of that. And so we see this story play out. We see this kind of timeline. We're going to skip down some verses where Jacob says he's got to send his son Joseph out to the fields to, to get his brothers to do something for them. He's looking for them, but they've moved on. We're going to pick up in verse 18. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. Now this, this seems to elevate really quickly, right? But I would just say this. Anybody here have multiple brothers? Listen, I, I grew up with there's three boys. We made plans to kill each other all the time. Just being honest. I mean, I remember this one situation. I was with my brothers just this last weekend. And um, we, were, we were, I think I was in like ninth grade and my brother Tim was in 11th grade. And we were on the bus going home. And in my head, I was thinking, as soon as we get off the bus, I'm going to kill him. I was very angry. I was an angry child sometimes. My mom can attest to that. And no joke, we got into a full-fledged, full-raged-on fist fight as soon as we were off the bus. And the bus driver didn't even stop. They just kept going. We were in the yard tussling. Now, by the time my mom and dad got home, we were best friends again. We were fine. But I see this story, and I think there's, there is something in here that's been brewing inside them. I've, has anybody ever had that kind of thing happen? Brewing inside them this anger towards each other, this animosity and this division that's been growing in this family. It's already there right from birth because there's four mothers. There's this division within this family, and yet God somehow looks at this family, and this becomes the family that are the names of the tribes of Israel. That should blow your mind. Because if we were to read all the details in these chapters, some of them are, are NC-17 rated. Like, there's a whole chapter we are not going to read today because I won't say the words out loud. But there are things literally that take place with this family, but yet God somehow still uses them to literally become the people of Israel of whom he actually shows the world what he's like. This is a big deal. So it says they, want to, they plan to kill him. And they say, verse 19, here comes the dreamer. They said, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of this scheme, so Reuben's the oldest, he came to Joseph's rescue. Oh, let's not kill him. Why should we shed him? Let's just throw him in the cistern. That's nicer, I guess. Then he'll die without our laying hands on him. Okay, not so great, Reuben. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So you've got Reuben, who's the oldest. And there's, a, there's some righteousness in this, this guy, at least, where he's like, well, let's, let's not kill him. And he was secretly planning to rescue his brother. So what happens here? I'm going to give you the short version. He comes, hey, hey, brothers, I'm here with a message from dad. They do what they say. They beat him up. They strip him of his robe. They throw him in this cistern. Then as they're eating, it says that they, just, you know, they see these uh, Midianite travelers, these traitors coming from a distance. And... Reuben decides, well, let's not just kill him, or, or it wasn't Reuben, actually, it was the other brother. He says, let's not kill him, let's just sell him into the slave trade, and then he'll be gone out of our, our hair forever. And so that's what they do. We jump down, verse 
Let me see here. Verse 28 says, oh, Ishmaelites, not the Midianites. So when the Ishmaelites, who were, oh, no, they were Midianite traders. I was right. Who were Midianite traders, came by. Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. So here we are. Now, we don't know the timeline here between the beginning of chapter 37 and the end of chapter 37. It seems like it's over just a short period of time. Like, oh, Joseph had a dream one night. Then he had a dream the second night. Then he went to find his brothers. Now he's in slavery. That's probably not true. Most historians actually believe it's been years. So there's been this festering of this thing with this dreams for years. And they take this chance now, and at the age, they know he's 17 now, which is probably why. Because around that age, they would have, they would have looked at him now as an adult instead of this young little brother, because that's most likely what was taking place. He, had, he was a little boy, a younger boy, sharing these dreams. They weren't going to kill him then. But somehow this whole thing, this division had festered in their family to the point now he's an adult and we don't feel as bad about killing him. And so they sell him off into the slave trade. And I think to myself in this story, and we want to start to put this in the sense of humanity and who we are as individuals in 2022, in this day and age. And, and I loved what we, we sang about today, and even the theme of the words that were given. There's a place where God gives us dreams, and maybe we don't fully understand them, but it seems like more often than not, circumstances come to stop those dreams. I don't know about you, but my, most of my life has not been an easy sailing kind of life. I feel like God comes and even speaks a promise to me or, or gives, a, gives me a dream of, of something in my life or even in the church's life or in what we want to see even in our region or in our town. And we see this kind of promise and dreams that we hear from God, but then it seems like circumstances come to do the exact opposite. So let's just look at this situation here. He's had a dream where he's going to be in some sort of status where his whole family's bowing to him, but then literally the opposite. He's now the lowest form of human in those days on the planet, a slave. Feels like the opposite of what God said, right? Anybody else feel like that sometimes? God speaks healing in your life. You feel like God gives you this word of, of health and wholeness and healing, and then you get sick in a diagnosis. Or you feel like God promises you something, but then something comes to stop it in its tracks. I'm not sure why that seems to take place. I mean, it's easy to always just look and say, oh, the enemy's out there, and I believe that's part of it, or the circumstances of life. But I also think that there's something about the process of our lives that matters even more than the end. I think God puts us in process. Now, I don't think he brings hard, all these hard things into our life to, to just beat us up and to, to kind of show us, you know, maybe where we're wrong. I don't believe that. But I believe God uses every circumstance of our life. I think that's the most incredible thing about it. He wastes nothing. And so here we see this situation where his brothers have sold him into slavery. And I'll give you some of the timeline, but... But he gets sold into slavery, and the Midianites come, and of course, they're just going to resell him. So they sell him off to a man named Potiphar. 
We know some of this story, but he's in this house, and he becomes kind of the ruler of Potiphar's house because they, he realizes quickly, oh, this young man is a hard worker. He's smart. He can run my affairs really well. So he becomes the ruler of Potiphar's house. Potiphar was a wealthy person. And he does that actually for 11 years. Now there's a situation with Potiphar's wife that turns awry with Joseph and Potiphar ends up throwing Joseph in jail. So now we see this back and forth situation, right? He's a slave and he's kind of elevated in Potiphar's house. Now he's back as a, a, a prisoner in prison. And we see him in prison there for a couple of years. We see this story play out where he has or where the, the Pharaoh has dreams, and Joseph is able to interpret those dreams. So he gets out of prison. He comes into Pharaoh's life, into Pharaoh's house now, the ruler of Egypt. Pharaoh puts him in charge, makes him the governor over all of Egypt. This is 13 years after his, has, after his brothers have beaten him up and sold him into slavery. 13 years. Now he becomes the governor of all of Egypt. I feel like in Christianity, I've heard this, you know, spoken on so many times where we look at this. This is the fulfillment of God's dreams in Joseph's life. He's now the governor. And I would just want to argue, I don't think that's true. Now, is it part of God's plan? Absolutely. We see that. Is God going to use him in the midst of this situation? Absolutely. But I don't think this is really the fulfillment of God's plan because, you see, just to elevate us to a place of power is never what God is really all about. You see, Joseph just had a part of a dream. He didn't understand the whole picture. It's just like our life. Sometimes we get promises or we get dreams or we get these things that God speaks into us, but we don't really see the whole picture, yet we think we do, right? And so I'm sure that Joseph has been discouraged for 13 years, and now he's in this, and maybe even in his mind he thinks, look, it's coming true, or look, these dreams are right. Now I'm elevated to this place of honor and power. But I'm telling you, God is not about just elevating you to a place of honor and power. What Jesus is about, what God is about, is using those kinds of things to change the world. That's why he elevates us, if he ever elevates us. And see, what happens even in Christianity, unfortunately, for the last couple thousand years, and even from this day on, is that people who are God-fearing people, they lose sight of why God has maybe elevated them, and then their power becomes about them. And I would argue that the next nine years of Joseph's life was that way. You see, Joseph becomes the governor. And it's, we see this time period. There's seven years of where there's going to be extra in the land, and he's going to be able to store food because God gives him that dream that there's going to be a famine for seven years after the good seven years. And so we're two years in. If you jump down now to Genesis 42 or over to Genesis 42, this is nine years that Joseph has been the governor of Egypt. The second most powerful person in the world, actually. Nine years he has run Egypt and all of its empire under Pharaoh, doing Pharaoh's bidding. And here we are two years into the famine time, and we get to verse 1, and we're back hearing what's happening with Jacob and his family. It says, when Jacob heard... 
that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you standing around looking at one another? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. So we see this, this famine that's now affected the whole world. And, and Jacob is now going to send his sons to get grain so that they can stay alive. And this is two years into it. And, uh, you know, just, just for historical sake, Egypt here is about 200 miles from Canaan where, where Jacob was living. At best, they could have gotten there in about two weeks. Most likely, it would have taken them about three weeks travel to get there. So they get there to Egypt, and we, we know some of this story if you've heard it before. Joseph recognizes his brothers as they come, and of course, we see the dream kind of play out. They come and they bow low to him. And they don't recognize him because now he looks Egyptian. He probably has a completely bald head. He probably has a whole bunch of tattoos, actually. He's dressed in Egyptian garb. He does not look like the Joseph they sold into slavery 22 years earlier. And he's watching them, and he's speaking to them, even through an interpreter, so they don't think he understands them. And he accuses them of being spies. He kind of honestly plays with them a little bit. I've heard people try to spiritualize this whole section of Joseph. I'm like, no, he's probably just an angry brother. Now, he, it plays out where he gets his father to come and all these things. But what we see is nine years have gone by where I think Joseph could have gone to see his dad. Think about this. Second most powerful person in the world. 200 miles away, his dad's living with his brothers. He's no longer a slave. He's no longer owned by anybody. Why didn't he go see his dad? Why didn't he go back? Why did he, why did he just stay there? And, and, and I look at this and I think this is part of the real promise that was taking place through this story. You see, God's desire is not just for us to be elevated to places of wealth or power or honor, but he's really his place is for us to be reconciled to each other and to him. It's the story of the entire Bible. It's the story of why Jesus hangs on the cross because he's literally trying to draw humanity back to this place of reconciliation. But what we see is that Joseph, for obvious, for obvious reasons has some hurt in his life where even for nine years when he had the ability to go back, he decides not to. And, if, and then even with this story, he plays this game with his brothers where he ends up throwing Simeon in jail and says, listen, until you bring back my younger brother and then I want to see my father. Well, he's not saying that, of course. But until you bring back your youngest brother, I will not release Simeon. Until you prove to me your story is true, even though he knows the story is true. He throws Simeon in jail. Here's another funny part of this story. His brothers go back. They tell his dad the whole story. Say, hey, Simeon's still in jail. And we can't get him out unless we go back with Benjamin. And guess what his dad says? No. How'd that make Simeon feel? Nobody's ever asking about him. In fact, we don't actually know the timeline between the first and second trip. All we know is that they ate all of their supplies and they were starving again before Jacob decided, okay, fine, I'll let Benjamin go. Simeon's in jail the whole time. Talk about dysfunction. We see this, 
storyline play out. We don't even know. Even in that time, Joseph is now, he's still the ruler. He sees his own brother in jail. He knows his father's alive, and he still doesn't go back. What's happened to Joseph? I think what's happened to Joseph is what happens to a lot of us. We get hard. We get broken. We build walls and fortresses around our hearts and our lives and our minds. We do it not only to God, but we do it to the people around us. We put our lives maybe into one goal line. Maybe it is like like Joseph. It's just his career at this point. He wants to make sure he does well for Potiphar, what he promised him, or not Potiphar, but Pharaoh, what he promised him. And he's put his whole life into this one thing, but yet he's literally lacking the reason that he's even there. He's forgotten why. what we're going to see is why God even brings him to this place to begin with, which is for the preservation of his family and the blessing of all nations. You see, if we think back to Abraham's promise, and then we remember the promise that God speaks even to Jacob in Genesis 28, God reminds Jacob, I'm going to give the same promise to you. And that promise is that I'm, you're going to be fruitful, you're going to multiply, you're going to, you're going to be blessed. But why? So that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And we see it even begin to play out in Joseph. Here he is, he's in this place now where literally all the families of the known earth at that time are surviving because of Joseph. Because God uses Joseph in this place to feed those people, to give them sustenance in this time. Yet Joseph, I think, has forgotten all of this. God wants reconciliation, but yet Joseph even is willing to wait. Whatever that period of time is between that first and second trip of his brother, Simeon sitting in jail, and Joseph just sits there and waits. Of course, it gets bad enough again. We see in Genesis 40. Five, that the brothers come back after finally convincing their father to let them take Benjamin with them. And and I want to read here in verse 1 through 8, and we see what takes place. It says, Joseph, so so he's brought them. They're, They're actually having a meal together, but he accuses them, and he sends them on their way. But he does this really brotherly thing, and he plants some stolen evidence in Benjamin's sack. So that they all get arrested again, and now they're back, and he's accusing them. And he's like, it's a kind of a funny storyline, but I see the humanity in this moment in in Joseph. But we get to verse 1 of chapter 45. It says this, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. And he broke down, and he wept. And he wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him. And the word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless, I'm sure for lots of reasons. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said. And we see this, this moment take place that even through this weird interaction with his brothers where he's kind of playing with them and he's accusing them and he's throwing one of them in prison, we see something breaks in his heart. It says he couldn't stand it any longer, and he reveals himself to his brothers. And I want to highlight this verse in Genesis verse 7, 45 verse 7. And this is Joseph. Something, something happens in Joseph. We don't really see when and how exactly, 
But I kind of like to muse that this whole time while his brothers are away, he knows his father's alive, he knows his one brother's in prison, I like to think that the Holy Spirit is really working on Joseph. He's starting to, to mess with his own thinking and to remind him of why he's there to begin with. And we see this declaration from Joseph's mouth in verse 7. And it's where he's, he's remembered now what God's promise really was. You see, we always look at the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams through, through this place where they come and bow low to him. But I think this is actually the fulfillment of the promises of God. Maybe those dreams were fulfilled in a literal sense through that bowing, but the really more important thing in the storyline is the fulfillment of God's promise that was first spoken over Abraham and then over Jacob and now over Joseph. And this is what he says in verse 7. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, and the governor of all Egypt. Look at this. Something has happened in Joseph's mind. He gets this clear picture and this clarity in this moment where he realizes why God has brought him here. Why even though the circumstances of life looked terrible for 13 years. And that even in his success, there was still something missing. And nine years into the success of his life, he has this revelation with his brothers there and his father is going to be coming that God has not brought him here just to elevate Joseph so that his dreams come true and his brothers bow low. He's elevated Joseph wide to preserve his families and to preserve the promise of which God spoke over Abraham and Jacob and all through the lineage. This is why Joseph is here. I think this is the main point of Joseph's story. It's not just to prove that a couple of dreams came true. I think sometimes we even look at a, a story like this and we look at it kind of so small in a way where we're like, oh, look, Joseph was this good boy and he was promised these dreams and his brothers, although they were bad people, and, and now look, God got his way. Like such, a, such an, a simplistic way of looking at the story, but the reality of the story being in the Bible, you have to ask yourself that. Was it just to elevate Joseph? Like, oh, look. Look what happened. No, it was to say, look at how God has preserved his promise through the ages. Look at how God has, promised, has preserved his promise over Abraham and then Jacob. And now even in the midst of such a horrible story, look at how God has preserved his promise. We're going to see it later. Because later these same people end up in 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And then we see Moses come along and God preserved the promise again through the parting of the Red Sea. And we see God constantly preserving the promise of his, his words over humanity all throughout time, even up to today. These are the words that God wants to speak over our life. That he's come to, to bless us, to be fruitful and to multiply, to show his goodness in the earth, but also to bless all the nations of the earth. Genesis 28, a reminder there, I put it in your notes, verse 14. It says, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Think about that. I think that's the same promise he's saying to you and I and New Testament Church in Messina, New York on July 31st, 2022, that all the families of the earth can be blessed through us. 
But we have to be reminded he's not elevating us for the purposes of our own honor and power or whatever. He's elevating us maybe in our lives for simply the reason to actually bless the world around us. You see, Jacob, in Genesis 48, he actually repeats the promise to his sons and to to Joseph, but he actually leaves out the most important part. I put a little contrast. I tell you, go for your homework. Go read Genesis 48.4, and you'll see Jacob spit out the promise, but Jacob leaves that part out. Actually, I think Jacob has forgotten. Because in verse 48, he literally makes it all about him. He says, God's going to bless us, and and he's going to multiply us, and he's going to give us the nations of the earth. That's what it says. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's not what God said. You go back to Genesis 28, when God actually speaks to Jacob, and God's words are, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Not that I'm going to give you everything, but don't we do that about our own promises sometimes? Sometimes we hear a promise over us, and we're just like, oh, look, God loves me the most. And there's a truth in that in a way. But the reality reality is is that God's promise is not just for you and I. God's promise is so that the nations and the earth and all the families around us and the people around us will actually begin to see the goodness of God come. That is what the church's job is existence for. So people don't look at Christians and be like, wow, they've, they've just got it good. No, it's to, it's to look at Christians and say, why are they blessing people like they are? Why are they caring for the world like they are? Why are they loving people who disagree with them? Why are they... I got, I got the MC mic now. The purposes of God are literally for us to actually transform the world around us. The promises that God has spoken over your life. You know, even in, I, I love all the things that, that we prayed about today and we said earlier. You know, God wants your marriage to be healthy, not just for your marriage's sake. But he wants your marriage to be healthy for your marriage's sake and also for the marriages that are around you so that when someone else is in a difficult place, they can look and say, look what God did before, he'll do it again. But sometimes we get so inwardly focused and we forget that the promises that God has spoken over his people since Abraham all the way through are not just for us, but for the world around us. John 6, I want to end with these couple thoughts from Jesus. John 6, we see Jesus speaking, and he makes one of these I am statements, and, and there's a number of them in, that Jesus makes throughout the Gospels, but this is one of them. It's John 6, verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. And I, I like this, this thought because Maybe, maybe in America we can't really understand what it's like to be starving. I don't think we probably do. <laughs> I mean, we all say that, right? Like some of you are looking at your watch now like, oh, I'm starving. You're not actually starving. But we see God make this comparison between hunger and thirst. And, and I think back to the story of Joseph where Joseph is here and he's providing food literally for, for the known planet at the time. 
And then we see Jesus come on the scene and he's saying the same thing. I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never be hungry again. I think this is the purpose. God is always saying, whatever I have is what I want to distribute to the world around me. And he uses Joseph in, the, in that storyline and in the Egyptian storyline to provide for the world around him. He uses it all throughout the ages. And Jesus comes to model the same thing. He literally says, I have this, this stuff inside me and I want to give it to you. And if you come to me, you'll never be hungry and thirsty again. I think that we're kind of supposed to have some of the same words. People should look at our lives and not look at just what we have, but what are we giving out? We, we later see, and Jesus it literally says, it's better for you that I go in John 16. And, and, he, and, and then we see him make these statements, greater works will you do than I have done. And I think sometimes we struggle with those. It's like, well, I'm not raising people from the dead, Jesus. I'm not, I'm not healing lepers. I'm not, I'm not seeing all those things in my life all the time. But what I really believe Jesus was saying is that's because the Holy Spirit's going to come and live inside every one of you, and then every one of you can act like me. You see, Jesus, as a man here, was limited to one person in space, in time, fulfilling the works that his father put him out. But when Jesus comes and lives inside every one of us, well, then literally around the world, which is what Christian term means, little Christ, there should be Christ's people who look like Jesus, walking around the earth, doing the same things he did, changing the world around us. This is God's plan from the beginning of time. It's still his plan today. There's kind of two thoughts I want to leave you with. One is this. Don't get distracted by success and forget the plan God has for you. Don't get distracted by the success God's put in your life. But also don't get distracted by the difficult circumstances in your life. You see, whether it's difficult circumstances or it's success, if we forget what God is calling us to do, neither of them really matter. But yet today, I think it's the theme of the day. Can we pull, pull those dreams back off the shelf? Can we remember promises? Can we even receive some promises this morning that God wants to do incredible things in us and through us? Can we stand this morning? What God-given dreams in your life have felt lost through circumstances? And I just want to put in that, I put God-given. We've got all sorts of dreams, but what God-given dreams in your life have felt lost through circumstances? How are those dreams meant to change the world around you? I think if the church first grabs hold of who Jesus is and is reminded of who we are in that process and what he has for us, that what God wants to do through every single individual in this room, online, in the North Country, is beyond our imagination. It's beyond our ability to conceive what he actually can do through us if we're reminded that he's in us and wants to work through us. And so today I'm just 
I want to almost push you today. It's kind of what I felt like in this message. I just want to push people to say, get out of, of wherever you're stuck, whether it's circumstances of life that have just kicked you and made you feel like a slave or in prison, or maybe it's even the distraction of the success of your life. Get unstuck today. Start looking around. Asking God, what do you have for me? What is what? Remind me again what you told me I'm supposed to do. Remind me why I'm in this place, in this moment, in this time. So I'm just going to pray and Sherry's going to come up and close. God, we just thank you for what you're doing. God, we thank you that every one of us has a plan and a purpose, God, that no matter the circumstances of our life, no matter the difficulties of our situations, God, even no matter the success of our life, if we've forgotten why you've brought us to this place, then it's all for naught. So God, I ask, challenge every one of our hearts today. Let us us focus in on you. Let us be reminded of what you're drawing us to become, God become sons and daughters of the living God, to be, to be those who actually show the world what Jesus looks like, to show those in this world the goodness of our Father. So God, we thank you for what you do, in Jesus' name. Oh, what a great reminder, right? I'm just reminded um, that in every circumstance that he's working and not just for my good sometimes we get stuck there right like he's working for my good well he's working for his glory right it's all about his glory and what a great reminder that we don't have to be perfect right but he does ask us to be surrendered to a perfect God so we're not perfect but but he's perfect and we just we're to surrender to that and then to be reconciled to one another and then to go out into the world and to reconcile people to him. I think that's the most important thing. And that's sometimes what we forget, right? We get so wrapped up, like Greg said, in our successes or our failures, or we just get stuck in our own circumstances and we become so inward focused that we forget that there's a hurting, dying world around us that needs to hear about a God that loved them so much that he went to the cross for them. So let's just focus this week. Let's pay attention to what God's doing. Let's pay attention to people, right? People that need him. And let's reconcile a hurting, dying world to a God that loves them. So be blessed this week. Be blessed today. We hope to see you on the river float. But whatever you do, um, just, just have a great day and remember God's goodness and faithfulness today. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.